Hello, good morning, everyone. Today I'm going to be reading from three different passages. First, Galatians 3.14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Next, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Finally, 1 Corinthians 2.2 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Church. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are now in our third part in our series in Galatians. We're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And we're looking at this very uh, decisive statement that Paul makes, which uh, marks for him the center of his ministry and the center of the, the meaning of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Penal substitution. You may have heard the phrase before, but it's the popular doctrine that sees the cross as the ultimate satisfaction of divine retribution. So, so even if you haven't heard the phrase penal substitutionary atonement, which is the official title, uh, you may have heard it des described in this way. Uh, by his death, Jesus pays God the penalty that is due for humanity's sin. Jesus appeases God's wrath so that God and humanity can be at peace with each other. God must have his wrath satisfied so that God must pay out the punishment that is due for sin. And so this punishment is directed onto Jesus instead of onto us. This is what's known as penal substitutionary atonement. And again, as I say, you may not have heard that particular phrase, but I'm sure that you've heard uh, the work of the cross um, being described this way. It has been repeatedly claimed, in fact, that this understanding of the cross is the understanding of orthodox Christian faith, and that to abandon this understanding of the cross is virtually to abandon orthodox Christianity. As Pastor Mark Dever writes in Christianity Today, he says, a stake is, uh, at stake is nothing less than the essence of of Christianity itself. Or again, John MacArthur, an extremely popular teacher in certain parts of the American church, says that those offering any view of the cross other than penal substitution are liberals, cultists, and pseudo-Christian religionists. And the scholar Bart Ehrman, once a Christian, but who now considers himself an agnostic, also asserts that penal substitution is the Christian understanding of atonement. And so we come to this climactic moment in Galatians, in the final chapter where Paul is essentially looking back on the rest of his argument, and he begins to summarize his letter with these immortal words, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
And when we hear that, we might be reminded of some very similar words that Paul, uh, so, some similar assertions that Paul makes in, in other letters. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And again, he says, We preach Christ crucified. I resolved to preach Christ and him crucified. May I never boast except in the cross. I resolve to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. And we preach Christ crucified. These are very totalizing, uh, very decisive statements, aren't they? No one can argue uh, about the, whether the cross was central for, for Paul or, or not. It obviously was. But what happens is that we bring our understanding of penal substitution to these texts so, and, and we just so overlay it over these texts and we just assume that this is what Paul means. Paul understood the cross in precisely those terms so that by default, by making the cross the very center of his message, Paul is also putting the doctrine of penal substitution at the center of his message so that Paul's gospel message is the story of a God whose wrath must be satisfied by diverting the punishment due to us onto Jesus instead. But is that Paul's understanding of the cross? What I hope to show this morning is that the context in which Paul makes these statements here in Galatians and in Corinthians, you know, when, when he says, I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, we preach Christ and him crucified. Well, whenever he says these things, um, I think they have quite a different, the context in which he says it gives it quite a different meaning. Now, it's not about making the cross sort of marginal and, or any less central to Paul's understanding of the gospel, not at all. That remains a central feature of Paul's understanding of the gospel. Absolutely. That doesn't change. But I believe the context will call into question this way of understanding the cross in the first place. Far from being the essence of Christianity, I actually think that penal substitution may obscure something of the essence of Christianity. I think it actually drains the cross of its transformative power for all of our relationships. But wait, didn't, didn't we just hear from some pretty significant teachers in the church that, that to abandon penal substitution is to abandon the essence of Christian faith? Well, not every teacher in the church says this. Take, for example, C.S. Lewis, the beloved Christian apologist and teacher. Uh, in Mere Christianity, he makes this point. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did that are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. Theories about Christ's death are not, Christi are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us, and even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. 
Why does Lewis leave the meaning of the cross in a sense open? Well, as he hints here, he actually has good historical precedent for doing so, starting with the ancient creeds. Because there is not now, nor has there ever been an orthodox doctrine of atonement, strictly speaking. The, the early church fathers in defining orthodox Christianity through the ecumenical creeds did not tie authentic faith to any one particular explanation of the saving effect of Jesus' death. In fact, the ancient creeds do not articulate any specific doctrine of atonement at all. You can look at the Apostles' Creed originating in the second century. You can look at the Nicene Creed originating in 325 or the Council of Chalcedon 451, the Athanasian Creed also from the fifth century. You, you can look at all of these ancient creeds and you won't find this view of the cross articulated in any of them. So what this means is, is that you and I can disagree with the core claims of penal substitution doctrine of atonement concerning propitiation of God's wrath and, and the satisfaction of, of God's retribution directed onto Christ instead of onto us. You can disagree with all of that while still professing faith, Christian faith, according to the ancient creeds of the church. So that's really important. Because according to Lewis, and more importantly, according to the ancient creeds, it means that there's room here for you and I to re-examine the meaning of the cross for Paul. And so I want to start doing that by considering the immediate context in which these claims are made. Whenever Paul says, I preach Christ crucified, I want to know only Christ. I want to consider the context in which those claims are made. For example, the next part of the sentence in Galatians, after Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does Paul mean by being crucified to the world and the world to me? Well, it's interesting because the other statements I mentioned earlier from Corinthians chapter 1 and chapters 2, which also make the cross central, are also surrounded with similar statements concerning Paul's relationship to the world. But perhaps they're a little bit more ex explicit and, and, and expanded upon. So, so there's a pattern here. Whenever Paul says, look, the cross is absolutely central, he also describes the way in which the centrality of cross then alters his relationship to the world. First Corinthians chapter one, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So in Galatians, 
Paul says he's been crucified to the world and the world to him. And here in Corinthians, he expands on this idea. The world's strength is weakness. The world's wisdom is foolishness. So, so we might understand Paul in Galatians saying, look, the world's entire system of values is dead to me and I to it. That's really important because the cross is central and the entire system of values or entire mode of operating is to be done away with. In the first Corinthians chapter two, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do have a speaker message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So again, it seems that Paul can't seem to talk about the centrality of the cross without also speaking of it in terms of how it diminishes the value system of this world. Each time Paul talks about the centrality of the cross, to boast only in the cross, to preach only the cross, to know only the cross, he is very specifically juxtaposing the cross with the principles of this world. And apparently the, the cross works in opposition to those worldly principles. So, so what are those worldly principles? Well, Paul mentions Greek wisdom in Corinthians. So let's take a look at the basic principles of, of justice according to Greek wisdom. Uh, and of course, this is the, the ideas of justice adopted by Roman thinkers. So we can go to Aristotle and we can go to the Roman thinker Cicero. And we find that the natural law of justice is summed up by the formula to do justice is to render to each what is due what is earned, owed, or deserved. Aristotle analyzed friendship as a kind of economy of exchange. The friend loves the other for the sake of the good things, whether it's pleasure or utility or virtue. He, he loves the other for the sake of those things which he receives from the other. And the love of the friendship endures as long as each gives to the other in equality as he receives from the other. Aristotle says that the, the repayment in kind or, or the rendering like for like, good for good, evil for evil, is the binding principle of society. And it's no coincidence that Paul's statement about the cross comes in the context of an argument about circumcision. We'll consider this again in, in a week or two in more detail, but for now, it's worth remembering that circumcision was a symbol of the Jewish merit-based system, a symbol of their own economy of exchange, a symbol of their own binding principle of society where everyone is rendered what is due, what they have earned, what they have been owed. Now, particularly important for our conversation, whether we're talking about the Jewish version or the Greek Roman pagan version, important for our conversation today is that it means retribution or retributive justice for the wrongdoer. 
It's the idea that retribution is how we put a wrong situation right. Redemptive violence is how we redeem a situation gone wrong. It's the justification we use for war, for capital punishment, for every act of revenge, no matter how big or small, whether it leads to the death of our enemies or, or just canceling someone, a friend, or, or even mum and dad because their views offend you. And it's reinforced by every movie in which we, we see the bad guys meet the violent end they deserve. In every TV show in which the heroes deliver and met out retributive justice. So let's circle back around to that understanding of the cross through the lens of penal substitutionary atonement. The cross, in other words, understood as God working out his own wrath due to us, but then directing it onto Jesus. Can you see the problem? This understanding of the cross actually leaves the world's entire system of values, the whole system of values intact. It, it doesn't break with the world's rules. It doesn't break any of the world's rules. It, it plays by the world's rules. It, it doesn't disrupt the system of retributive justice. It operates within that system. Actually, it does more than that. It actually provides divine justification for that system. But Paul says, that the cross is central because the cross completely undoes the world system of values. May I never boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. No, the cross is not God acting within the all too familiar contours of the world's economy of exchange. The cross is not God just merely reinscribing writ large the world's myth of redemptive violence. The cross is not God operating within the world system of retributive justice. It's the exact opposite of that. It is God breaking the cycle of retribution, breaking the cycle of violence, breaking the cycle of revenge. You know, whenever the apostles talk about Christ's crucifixion, they say to the crowds, you crucified Jesus, you killed him, you nailed him to the cross. But God meant this for something else. God, but God raised him from the dead. You meant it for this, but God meant it for that. We're the perpetrators of a cycle of violence and retribution and revenge. But God in Christ absorbs our violence, absorbs our retribution, absorbs our hatred, and he breaks the cycle and he does away with the economy of exchange and introduces this new economy of grace. In the cross, we see the, the sheer differentness of God, which at first we won't know what to do with because it looks like foolishness. It looks like weakness. But if only we would look closer every day what we'll discover is that place where the peace of God for the peace of the world resides. <laughs>